it's important to consider shifting that view of failure to be more aligned with what is true. And as a consequence, shifting our view of failure would shift how we live our lives. It would embolden us and encourage us and um, encourage us to take more risks and more challenges, which would ultimately yield benefits for us as individuals and as a society. Welcome to Professional Profiles, a podcast where I interview industry experts to understand their jobs, learn about their journeys to success, and uncover the strategies they've used to find it. Today we're joined by Dr. Becca North, an expert on the topic of failure. Dr. North has spent years exploring the psychology of failure, including its impacts on individuals and organizations, as well as how to overcome it to achieve success. Join us as we explore the psychology of failure and the implications it has in our lives. Here's the interview. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So just to start it off, what's your job title? So I don't have a single job title. I have three kind of streams, I think, of what I do. And the first one is researcher. I'm a researcher in psychology, and my area of research is in happiness and well-being and human flourishing more generally. And a big question of my research is how negative experiences can foster positive change. So researching is one stream. And a second stream is teaching. I teach at the University of Texas. I teach in a program called um, Human Dimensions of Organizations. Um, it's a graduate program. And I also teach um, at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT. And I teach at Houston Tillotson University, which is a, an HBCU here in Austin. And then the third stream is kind of what I think of as speaking slash consulting. And most of that relates to my book. And so I'll do speaking like I did at St. Stephen's relating to my book and the ideas in my book. And then I'll also do consulting relating to those ideas as well. So I kind of think of myself as a researcher slash teacher slash speaker and consultant. And then I'm obviously an author. What do you like about your job? You know, I mean, having just talked about these streams, I mean, I think it makes one of the things I really like is the variety, right? So I... I like to do deep thinking about ideas and I like to kind of systematically try to investigate questions and try to figure them out. And I'm really interested in the topic that I research. So what helps humans to flourish? What helps us to achieve our full potential and live to the kind of the greatest capacity that we can um, in a way that's most fulfilling and most rewarding and most productive. And then I also like to look at like what gets in the way of us doing that, whether it's beliefs or thoughts or other obstacles, what are kind of the the factors that foster and thwart flourishing. Um, so I really like doing that. And then I love teaching. I love helping kind of students uh, of all ages. I've taught at all ages um, to develop intellectually and personally I love to discuss ideas with them. I love to be in the classroom and hear other perspectives and engage in conversation. And then I also really enjoy the speaking and consulting that I've done and connecting with people about the ideas of my book and kind of continuing that conversation. So those are some of the elements that I like about the different streams of work that I have. 
So I'd love to get back to your book in a moment, but I first want to ask what your level of schooling was. <laughs> Too much schooling, probably, <laughs> if that's a level. <laughs> um, uh, an undergraduate degree in history, and then I have a master's degree in public affairs, and then I have a PhD in psychology. So through all that schooling, how did you stay motivated? Oh, I like that question. Well, first of all, I'd say my level of motivation was pretty high overall, but I I would want to share with people that, I mean, motivation for me is something that ebbs and flows too. And so sometimes you're kind of in a stage where you're feeling, I maybe I feel burnt out. I feel like this is too much and I feel less motivation. And that's, I feel like that's typical for a lot of people. But I think what kind of drove me during that time was my intrinsic interest in what I was doing and my belief that what I was learning could help me try to help make the world a better place in different ways. And I felt like the skills that I was gathering and kind of what the work that I was engaged with was in line with um, what I wanted to do and helping me to affect positive change in the world. And I think that's what I came back to as kind of a touchstone when my motivation waned. What were you interested in throughout school? I'm really a curious person. I'm just, I'm really interested in people, but I'm interested in a lot of subjects. And so it wasn't just limited to one area. I'd say what what I was probably most interested in, in in general was the history and English and language. I love language. Um, I took Spanish in high school and Spanish literature at the end of high school and in college. And then I, I also love literature. So I loved my English literature classes. And I really, I really enjoyed the science and math as well, but I probably got more excited in general about history and, and English and language. And then the history, I just love, you know, I love ideas. And I had a history teacher who I think is probably the best teacher I've ever had, which says a lot because I just told you how much school I've gone to. <laughs> and I think he's the best teacher I've ever had. And he really helped me and others to cultivate our independent thinking and to be really rigorous with our thinking and to be ambitious with what we are trying to do and how we are trying to grow intellectually. That really added to my love of history. Um, But I would say, you know, if I had to kind of just say one thing, I would say ideas. I just, I love to play with ideas and I also love to problem solve. I love to try to figure things out. So you've written the book, Your Hidden Superpowers, How the Whole Truth of Failure Can Change Our Lives. What do you mean when you say truth of failure? When I think about the whole truth of failure, so the book is really, when I try to say it in like a sentence or two, I think about the book investigates the connection between failure and success and then challenges the prevailing view of failure and specifically the prevailing view that failure is all bad. And so what I try to do with kind of what I'm positing is that like, I started realizing at a certain point, that might not be the whole truth, actually, about failure. That might be a part of the truth, what I think of as a narrow slice of the truth. But I started realizing at a certain point, I think there's a lot more to the story and I want to investigate. And so that's what I try to do in the book is to lay out the whole story about failure or the term that I use is like the whole truth about failure. And like just very briefly in a sentence or two, kind of one of the things I found was that that prevailing view of failure, that failure is all bad is part of the truth, 
Um, and I kind of try to talk about that as the dark side of failure, pain and humiliation, for example. But it's just a slice of the truth. And there's also this light side of failure, um, which really includes failure's enormous, powerful benefits. So when I talk about the whole truth of failure, I talk about rewriting the story we tell ourselves about failure, that it's not just all bad, that there is actually this enormously light side of of failure in addition to the dark side. And that's kind of how I, I think of the whole truth of failure. What prompted the idea for your book? For all the things in our lives that we kind of can't pinpoint exactly when it started. So if you think about like a hobby or, you know, being a fan of a sports team or a friendship or a relationship or some other kind of interest, a lot of times um, we don't know exactly when it started. And that's a wonderful thing. You're kind of like, I just feel like I've always been a fan of this team or I've always kind of been interested or I'm not sure when I became interested in this in theater or in art or in sports. But for me, I actually remember the night that I decided to write this book. And um, it was in March of 2010. And it was on the night of a big failure in my own life. I, you know, as I said in the book, like the details are kind of boring to go into, but very briefly, I was about to graduate with my PhD in psychology. And I had applied for this postdoctoral grant to do work at a university after I got my PhD. And this is the part, like for reasons that are kind of too boring to go into, it seemed very likely that I was going to get it. I had applied to this, to an NIH grant before, and I had been right on the bubble and they asked you to make these revisions. And I had done all the revisions very diligently and meticulously. I mean, it took so much time and went step by step and addressed every concern they had. And again, I'd done really well. So I felt like this is, this is going to go well. And, um, on this particular night in March, um, it was during March Madness. It was after a, a Duke basketball game that I was that I was watching that evening. I came back and I thought, you know, I think my score for this grant might be uploaded online. I'm going to check it out. And I checked it out, and it was uploaded. And I had actually I actually did worse after doing all these revisions than I had done the first time. And I mean, I was like flabbergasted. I mean, it's like if you turn in a paper to your teacher and then they're like, hey, this is good, but like here you need to make these changes and then you make all the changes and they're like, no, this is a lot worse. (laughs) You're like, wait, what happened? But I did, I scored worse and I scored so poorly that it was clear I, I had no chance of getting this grant. And it was that night that I felt really disappointed and I felt really discouraged and really bummed um, because this was something that I was very interested in doing. But at the same time, this idea flew into my mind that I wanted to write this book, that I had been investigating the connection between failure and success in a scientific way. And I kind of got this idea, you know, I want to investigate it in a more creative, personal way. And I want to, you know, add to the science that I've um, done and that I've kind of read from other people as well. And I want to interview people who inspire me from a wide range of careers because I have an interdisciplinary background. So I was thinking, I want to interview people who are extremely successful. And I thought of that as people whose work inspires me from poetry and literature and business and sports and history and education. And I want to talk to them about what role, if any, failure played in their success and then to combine those stories with the science to write a book about the relationship between failure and success. And that was the night that the idea started. 
How do you define failure and why is it important to understand it? So I love that you asked the question of how do you define it? Because I I talk about this like in my book that it's not clear kind of in our everyday language or everyday way, like how do you, you know, different people have might have different ways of defining it. And what I decide to do is like, hey, let's go back to the dictionary. Let's just draw on the dictionary definition. And so that's what I do. As in, in the dictionary, it says something like, when you set out to achieve some goal and you don't achieve it, that's a failure. And that's what it is, going after something that you want and you don't get it. And I think that, you know, I, as I say in the book as well, a lot of times we try to avoid using the word fail or failing or failure because we're trying, because it can be scary and it can feel harsh. And we're trying to kind of take that scariness out of it by not saying it. But I actually think that we imbue the word with more power when we avoid it. And so I think that we actually can kind of defang the word, if you will, or remove some of the scariness or the power of it by saying it and calling it what it is, you know, and using the dictionary definition that if you're going after something and you didn't get it, then that's a failure. Here's what I argue is that it's important to understand it because the way we think about failure has a huge impact on the way we live and um, the way we lead our lives. And the current view of failure, um, that failure is all bad, um, leads us to live in a way that it holds us back and it limits our potential and it encourages us to just go after things that have a high probability of success and to stay kind of well within our means and well within our limits, which then leaves these untapped resources within us. And that's what your hidden superpowers is, is by living in that way. When we think that failure is all bad, then we oftentimes don't see how powerfully that view of failure affects our, our lives. And it leads us to prioritize avoiding failure. And we don't usually say that out loud. Like my number one goal is avoiding failure. But when you look at the way we make decisions and kind of the everyday moments and the bigger ways that we live our lives, you see that that is as a consequence of the way we view failure, that is a top goal. So we oftentimes kind of are governed by thoughts like don't mess this up, don't make a mistake, don't get this wrong, don't look dumb, avoid any chance of rejection, don't humiliate yourself. And that really holds us back and leads us to stay well within the bounds of our potential and leaves these untapped resources within us. And here's the thing. This is what I say in the book too. If that were true, if the prevailing view of failure that it's all bad were true, then it might just be one of those hard truths that we have to deal with, right? But I started realizing at a certain point, it's not only that it has this huge impact on the way we live and leads, leads, excuse me, leads these resources within us, but I actually don't think it's true. And so it's important to consider shifting that view of failure to be more aligned with what is true. And as a consequence, shifting our view of failure would shift how we live our lives. It would embolden us and encourage us and encourage us to take more risks and more challenges, which would ultimately yield benefits for us as individuals and as a society by drawing out some of those resources and what I call the magic 
and meaning and joy that lay dormant within us. How do you think individuals and companies can create a culture that embraces failure? I love that question. I absolutely love that question. And I feel like that's, there's no single answer. There's definitely no simple answer, but that's kind of what I, that's a huge, I can even just feel inside, you know, I feel energized. I feel lit up when you ask that question, because that's a huge part of what I hope to do with my speaking and consulting and with the conversations that I'm having is to figure out ways broadly that organizations and individuals can do that, but also ways that are tailored to organizations and companies, how, you know, looking at based on the input from people who are part of those organizations, what do you think your organization could do to embrace failure better? I think part of it is, you know, with the book and in trying to expose the whole truth of failure, I feel like what I'm trying to accomplish is if we see the whole truth of failure and the enormous benefits that it has and the powerful benefits that it does have, then we shift the way we view failure in a way that lowers our fear of failure and boosts our courage in a way that's organic if that makes sense. So it's less about force and less about like gritting it out and trying to make yourself do something. And more like the whole goal of the book is to illuminate how failure is a lot different than we see it and how it has these enormously positive benefits. And I think if we truly see that, then the fear starts to lessen naturally. So I think that's one one part of it. I think another part of it is so you can kind of, you can try to try to change the way you behave by changing the way you think, which is kind of one of the goals of the book, try to change the way we think about failure. But another way of trying to help yourself shift the way you think is just to change the way you behave. So for example, if people just said, well, I don't know how to really shift the way they think about failure, but what if I just acted like I was less afraid of it? So what if I, for example, started talking with people about it? And I think that conversations about failure being more open about failure um, will help other people be more open about failure and which will help every one of us to extract the benefits better of failure. Um, And so talking about failure more openly, I think uh, is another part of it. And then I think the third part that I would say, you know, this is more, this is less a strategy and more just to kind of bring awareness to this you know, one of the aims of the book is to spark a cultural shift in how we view failure, because I think that that genuinely would reap remarkable rewards for us as individuals and as a society. But if I, when I think about like one individual reading the book, and then let's say like the process that I just described happens where they see more of the whole truth of failure, the fear is lessened, and they shift the way they view if they view failure, which shifts the way they lead their lives. If they're in a culture or an environment where no one else has that same view, where no one else sees the value of failure, no one sees the benefits, no one values that, it's going to make it really, really hard for that individual to be able to act on what they see or kind of act on this shift. So it really does take a whole culture of organizations or schools or companies, I think, to help kind of maximize this shift as best as we can. So in your book, you talk about Coach K from Duke. Yes. Could you mention a bit about that experience and what you learned from him? Yeah, um, that was 
such a personally special experience. Coach K has been kind of a, a hero of, of mine, I guess, for a long time. I moved to Durham, North Carolina in seventh grade and Coach K you know, was coach at that time. And he, he was, uh, he just retired as you probably know from Duke basketball last year. And he's a winningest coach in, in college basketball. He just has his innumerable accolades. He's won like five national championships, all these final fours coach for the U S men's national team. And it's funny because I remember when I was in Durham and I was having dinner with a friend, uh, the night before I was going to interview coach K And we saw someone who I think was like a parent at the school that I went to in high school. It was somebody that I think kind of knew my parents, but I didn't know them that well. But the friend who I was eating with knew this person. And so we spoke with them um, briefly and they said, this is Becca North. Uh, What are you in town for? And I said, oh, I'm actually in town to interview Coach K. And I'm interviewing people whose work inspires me about the relationship between failure and success and I wanted to interview Coach K and see if he's had any failures and if he has, how they relate to his success. And this guy goes, what the heck would Coach K know about failure? You know, And I feel like that is the attitude that we oftentimes have about our heroes. Or another way of thinking about that is about extremely successful people, that we, we assume that success is kind of achieved in this linear way and this step-by-step process way, and that it doesn't involve setbacks or moments of huge doubt or uncertainty or, or big losses. And Coach K totally disabused me of that notion. So he talked about three big failures that he had. And one of the big failures I'll share with you here he said that it really took place over the course of three years. Um, and his first three years at Duke, which I believe was from 1980 to 1983, um, he had three losing seasons. And I think that the record, his record during that time was 38 and 47. And each season was a losing season. And then that third losing season, in the last game, his team played uh, University of Virginia and lost by 43 points. And he just said the Duke fans, Duke alumni wanted him out of there. He said he felt like a leper. Um, And if you, you know, it's kind of, if you just put yourself in that moment and think about coaches now, and I mean, he had a losing season for three years. And then this last, last losing season, you're kind of thinking, all right, like this is not going well. And here's the last game, like what's going to happen And then they get totally blown out. And he talked about how painful it was. And he also talked about how he felt angry at that time. And he said he also felt more determined than ever to figure out how to build the blueprint for the team that he wanted to have. And in fact, those freshmen um, in that final, like that third losing season, when they, I think that year they they won 11 games in that third season. And then when they became seniors, that team went to the national championship game. They won the ACC conference. They were actually one basket away from winning the national championship. And he really said that they actually, that, that group that he kind of built did create a blueprint for the teams that he had later on. More generally, he talked about, I mean, he talked about failure, the three big failures, but he kind of talked about failure 
throughout his life. And when he went to West Point, how failure was a major tool in how they learned and how they grew. And uh, he, he spoke really in powerful, meaningful ways about how failure reveals things to us that winning can't reveal and how it's instrumental in becoming, for him, it was instrumental in achieving the success that he had and becoming the, the coach that he was. So some of the people that I've talked to have mentioned using fear of failure as a motivating tool. Yeah. Should we fear, fear failure? Yeah. I think that um, I've heard people talk about that too. And, you know, I, I honestly think if that, I mean, I think that's, that could be like a bigger philosophical question about like how, you know, how that works. But I think if that, if somebody feels like that works for them and it feels like it helps them do what they want to do and helps them like kind of live the life, the life that they want to live, then it sounds like it works for them, you know? And I, and I would, I would have no kind of interest in having them act differently if they really feel like that's a, a meaningful tool for them. But what I kind of, what I have seen overall is that this way that we view failure, um, that failure is all bad. Like these people said, it actually does tend to govern the way that we act and the way that we lead and we decide in ways that actually can hold us back and in ways that can actually discourage us from pursuing our boldest dreams and our boldest ambitions. And then importantly, that looming fear of failure can also, and the view that failure is all bad, can lead us to hide failure when it does happen. And hiding failure when it does happen blocks us from extracting its rewards. So it kind of leads, leaves these like, I think of these like poker chips, you know, or gems or this treasure on the table because failure offers a lot of benefits. But if you hide it, then you don't have the opportunity to claim those benefits. And I think when you really fear failure, that goes along with the tendency to hide it and want to kind of put it under the rug, which prevents you from getting the benefits that you can. But in kind of direct response to the should we fear failure, I think of it less as like a yes, no question and more on a sliding scale. So when I think about like the prevailing view that failure is all bad, then if you like kind of picture a sliding scale and maybe like if this is like failure is all good and then this is failure is all bad, then we think about it as, as all bad, then that leads us to live in the way that we've already described but it's also not all good, right? So, but I think about the whole truth of failure is sliding the scale like way beyond where it was to be all bad, to be way closer to over here. And when you do that, that helps you overcome your fear of failure and it helps to lower the fear of failure. But I don't think it, it eliminates any fear of failure. You know, I think that's really natural to have some of that fear there, but I think it doesn't make it as demanding or as omnipresent. And I think it also like doing that kind of sliding the scale helps to elevate your courage in important ways as well. So I would say, first of all, if some people think that they have a big fear of failure and it's working for them, then go for it and move forward. But for people who feel like their fear of failure 
has real consequences and costs and kind of holds them back and prevents them from doing things that they would want to dare to do, then I think shifting this view of failure can dramatically reduce our fear of failure, um, but not necessarily eliminate it completely, but help us to overcome it by dramatically reducing it. So how important is setting goals in in terms of failure, setting goals that are outside of your comfort zone a little bit? Charlie, I love that question. I <laughs> Because I think that, uh, you know, again, when I think about like the aims of the book, that's really part of the big aim is that like, when we view failure as all bad, and when we're governed by the sphere of failure, then we're less bold, less daring, more likely to pursue areas or goals that have a high probability of success. And when we overcome that fear of failure, when we shift our view of failure, then I think we are just naturally or more organically ready to pursue challenges, which means going outside of our comfort zone, taking risks, being bolder, um, because we recognize that if we have a success, then that will help us in some ways. If we have a failure, that will help us in other ways. And so I think that like shifting our view of failure, it naturally leads to us being able to step out of our comfort zone. But kind of how I was saying earlier, um, and not to kind of get too into the weeds with this, but like, you know, I think that shifting your view can naturally shift your actions. But then also some people might be like, I'm not really sure if my view is shifted, but I'm just going to try to play with this new action and see what that leads to. And then that can ultimately shift your view. So you might say, you know what? I'm actually still feeling completely terrified of failure. And I feel like it's really kind of driving my decisions, but I'm just going to make a decision to put myself out there and step outside of my comfort zone and, 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 and see what happens. And I think that that's like an exciting, bold approach too. How can one stand out in your field? That's a good question. You know, this is my personal opinion, but like, I think really in any field, standing out is about original thinking. I mean, well, I mean, I guess I would kind of couch that with, you can stand out for a whole host of reasons. And I'm thinking like, you know, um, in, in a whole host of different ways. So um, that's not the only way. I mean, people can achieve in innumerable ways, but I think, in many contexts, like the way that you really add meaningful value is through your voice and your independent thinking and your authentic action and what I think of as your originality, right? Because it's it's critical thinking and it's creativity, but it goes beyond those because it's imbued with your individual perspective. And it's what you really think and what you really believe and what you really want to do. And I think that that, what I think of originality is like creativity with your fingerprint on it. You know, I think that that originality is really what helps people contribute. It's what sets people apart. I mean, it's oftentimes considered kind of a key element of, of genius. Um, and I kind of take the view and that, that we each have our own unique genius and kind of trying to um, cultivate that, like your individual contribution, what you're capable of, your specific unique interests is one of our 
highest callings and also our greatest gifts. And that like in that lies our greatest capacity to contribute, to be fulfilled individually, but also to contribute to the world and to help make a positive impact on the world. Are there any resources for those interested in your profession? Yeah, there are so many, there are so many resources. I think that, you know, one, one big resource is human beings. (laughs) Like, I think that like, you know, talking with other human beings, I feel like even in the last year or two, I've kind of gotten more into that. And I think tried to encourage myself to have, to kind of have the courage to reach out to more people, to just talk basically into, cause I, I mean, I was kind of, you know, I feel like I was like starting that comment tongue in, tongue in cheek about, but I really think it's true that conversations with other people um, are a huge resource and just asking people kind of what was your path or like, here's something I'm thinking about. What is your perspective? What is your guidance? Tell me kind of what got you interested in what you're doing. I mean, really having the conversations like you're having here. I I think that that is sometimes it's underused because I think we can be afraid, you know, and like, then it's kind of awkward. Is this person going to be annoyed and say no? And people will say no. I mean, that's part of, that's kind of part of the process too, but other people you'll find are happy to talk and interested in talking with you. And I mean, I think there are a lot of resources, you know, that things that you can read and research and go to people's websites and that kind of stuff. But I also think that a conversation is, you know, in conversations with other people um, that that's a really wonderful, meaningful resource to tap. So my last question is if you were to give one piece of advice surrounding your key to success or other successes, what would it be? You know, shifting our view of failure, that does matter a lot to me, right? And that's not the only piece of advice. Um, but I mean, I care deeply about that topic. Um, and that's why I decided to write the book. And, you know, the process of writing the book involved a lot of ups and downs and took a long time. And what kind of kept me going through all that was like, I was like, I think I have something that I see. And I think it, you know, I think what I'm seeing is not true. And I think it matters. And I'm kind of, I kind of picture myself being like, y'all come over here, check this out. You got to see it because this could really have a big impact on how we live. Um, And so that is, that is one of my answers. Um, I guess another related answer would be just to try to have the courage to dare to go after what you're really interested in, what you want to do. And when you have setbacks to help yourself, you know, process those setbacks and to bring in your team of supporters and friends and family to help you um, process that and move forward. And I think that 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 kind of courage to dare and then relatedly the courage to listen internally to what you're thinking and feeling and what the messages you're getting from inside about what you really care about and what matters to you and what you want to go after and to let that inform your action outside and to let that inspire your courage to take on challenges and take on risks. Well, thank you so much for your wonderful insights and your valuable time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie. Um, you're welcome. I enjoyed talking with you. I you know, appreciate the opportunity. Thank 
Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to stay updated for future episodes. My name is Charlie Hubbard, and this has been Professional Profiles.